Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Martin Arnold, the FT's banking editor. Joining me in the studio today is Rudian Lewis, founder and head of Ratesetter, the UK peer-to-peer lender. Also here are Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent, and Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent. While we will hear from Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, who's been talking about banking regulation with Anat Admati, professor of finance at Stanford Graduate School of Business. This week, we'll be taking a deeper look at the troubles of the peer-to-peer lenders in the US, or the marketplace lenders, as they prefer to be called. Mr. Lewis from Ratesetter will hopefully shed some light on whether the bubble is bursting in this area of fintech that's been growing incredibly fast. Second, we'll also look at the €2.5 billion Euro rights issue launched last week by Spain's Banco Popular and ask how many other European banks may need to raise more capital. And finally, we'll hear Anat Admati's views on the issue of bank capital, on which she's one of the world's leading experts. So starting with the problems of the so-called marketplace lending industry in the US, and particularly Lending Club, which has seen its chief executive depart after a conflict of interest row, and a few months earlier, Prosper, the number two marketplace lender in the US, was hit when it was found to have lent money to one of the San Bernardino gunmen and suspected terrorists. So, Ridian, the problems of the US peer-to-peer marketplace lending industry seem to hinge on the fact that they've switched from the true peer-to-peer model of taking money from retail investors and lending to consumers and switched to more of an institutional funding model. And that institutional funding is drying up a bit and that's causing them serious problems, as well as these kind of teething problems of governance around some of the biggest companies. That's right. I think the teething problems are quite company specific. And I think it's a young industry and it's growing up fast. And as governance coming into businesses is always a rocky period. But if there's good fundamentals to the business, it will get through that and it will emerge. And I'm sure that'll be the case with some of the platforms in the US and also in the UK. I think that's right. I think that there's been a a stark contrast in the way the US and the UK have gone. In the US, they grew quicker through basing their model on institutional funding. Whereas in the UK, many platforms have decided to pursue a slower but more considered growth, in our view, via retail funding. And I think we're beginning to see the merits of that. And I think, you know, a lot of people see peer-to-peer as meaning kind of person-to-person. I'm not sure that's necessarily the case. I think peer-to-peer really refers to kind of investor-borrower as opposed to investor-bank-bank-borrower. So it's kind of that direct contract is what peer-to-peer means. But I think you know the key point is that we've always believed at Ratesetter that you've got to put retail first because it's a much more loyal form of funding and also it's less expensive. I mean, institutional money is basically just retail money sort of wrapped again. And our view of the merits of peer-to-peer lending is the ability to cut costs and therefore give better value to the end customer. Cut so out the middleman. Cut out the middleman. institutions are adding that middleman. It's just another middleman. So, we, But you don't have any institutional funding in your platform? We are 95% funded by retail. The reason why we have 5% institution is the strategy of a diversification of funding. So in a way, in the same way that banks 
they are 60 to 70 percent funded by deposits they could probably be 100 percent funded by deposits but the reason why they choose to have some long-term debt some institutional funding is optionality is to say that these types of capital they tend to perform differently or show different characteristics in different stages of the cycle so it's good to have some diversification but we are predominantly 95 percent retail is it fair to say that the problems we've seen in the u.s marketplace lending sector have not been transmitted yet to the European one, particularly the UK? Well, I think there's another important difference, which is in the UK, the government here has identified peer-to-peer lending as a good force and is being quite encouraging. And therefore, together with industry, it has sought regulation at an earlier stage in the development of the industry. So the UK is further ahead in its development in terms of regulation. And I think that's put the brakes on the industry a little bit in the last year, but probably for long-term gain. So the industry is now very close to being fully regulated. And that has meant that it's sort of fast forwarded a lot of these governance issues. And whereas I think the US took a view that let's just let this thing get big and then worry about it. I think the UK tried to nurture it and they've regulated it earlier. So regulations perhaps prevented some of these problems from manifesting themselves here in the UK. But there are a lot of people now who are saying after several years of incredible hype and excitement and talk about the growth of marketplace lending and the potential for it to take 30, 40% of the total lending to the consumer particularly, but also talking about you know mortgages and SME loans as well. Some of that bubble is starting to deflate. Do you think that the bubble's bursting or do you think it's just some growing pains? I I think it's growing pains. I mean, I think it's very predictable. You tend to see people kind of overbuy things. And then I think we're probably going to go see a stage where they oversell them. And young businesses, you know, it's a matter of style. Some people like to go out and say big numbers to sort of create some effect. Our view at Ratesetter, at least, is that we should take a very long term approach that this is a 10 to 15 year trend. And as we say internally, we think the tortoise will overtake the hare. So we're happy to take a more measured pace of growth. Because our view is that these things just take time. But what has occurred is a fundamental legal and regulatory breakthrough, which is now loans are available to be bought by retail investors. And that's a positive thing. Maybe just bring Emma in here. I mean, there is a a fundamental difference between the US model where they book 90% of the revenue from peer-to-peer loans up front and only 10% over the life of the loan. So they need to kind of keep doing new business in order to keep generating revenue. Whereas, Rydian, I think you were saying, how much of your loans are you booking up front? So we made the switch two years ago to move more over the term of the loan, such that now 40% of our revenue is over the course of the loan. So we see this as more putting skin in the game. It means that you tend to be more circumspect about the lending you do. It also means conceptually you can slow down lending without your revenue falling over a cliff. So our view is that you can't have an industry whereby it is purely incentivized just to grow. It needs to be incentivized around quality as well. On the issue of institutional investment, there have been a couple of reports recently, one from Morgan Stanley last year, which said we shouldn't really underestimate the importance of institutional investment for the industry ultimately to achieve scale and be successful and sustainable in the long run. Equally, there was a report by Deloitte in the last couple of weeks that said at current growth rates, and this refers mainly to the UK, Banks have nothing to fear and shouldn't be threatened by P2P because they won't achieve sufficient scale and ultimately banks will continue to have a cost advantage when it comes to lending. So it seems to be there's a tension between 
using institutional money for growth, but achieving diversification of funding. So you're not just allowing lots of institutions to pile in and you're having that balance of retail investors and institutions. And in the event of, say, an economic downturn, a number of investors might pull out. But equally, if you do have certain types of institutions on board who say their focus is lending to small businesses, for example, that might be incentive for them to remain an investor. So you've got that sort of safeguard in place by having that diversification. Yeah, I mean, as I say, I mean, our view is that we only took institutional money and it's a tiny percentage of what we take for strategic reasons. We did not do it to accelerate growth. We do not need institutional money to accelerate growth because you can only grow so fast in financial services and building a business takes 10, 15 years. So I would say, put it the other way around, which is that a lot of institutions were very smooth and very good salespeople at coming and saying, we want to buy your loans. I think it was against the better judgment of a lot of platforms to take that money. We at Ratesetter said no to most of them. And I think the challenge for peer-to-peer lenders is to get to scale. And our view is that there's £600 million worth of loans under management and rate setup. We probably need to be three or four times bigger before the economies of scale kick in. The challenge for banks is not to get to scale. The challenge for banks is to cut costs. So I think as an investor, you would say, what am I going to bet on? The ability for young businesses to get to scale or for old businesses to cut costs. And I think cutting legacy costs is as difficult as it is getting to scale. Yeah, but this is an industry that's not fully been tested by a credit crisis, the true downturn in the credit cycle. I think it's completely fair, and I think that that's not a reason to say that it's not going to survive those. I mean, the rate set of provision fund, we expect to be able to withstand an increase in default. That is the way the business has been set up. I think that that is the question that people are asking, and it's a valid one. And this business model is not going to prove itself over six or seven years. It's going to prove itself over 15 or 20 years. Brilliant. Thanks very much. Switching now to European banks and do they have enough capital? Shares in Banco Popular in Spain fell very heavily last week after it unveiled plans for a €2.5 billion rights issue and a fresh round of provisions in its troubled portfolio of property loans. Bankers are saying that the Madrid-based group was moving ahead of the pack in anticipation there could be others. So joining me is Laura to discuss whether there could be a flurry of capital raisings from other European banks and who in particular do we think could be next in line. Yes, I guess there's a couple of different things going on here. I mean, first, if you look at it in the context of Banco Popular, Spain does seem to be a focus point here. And we saw the shares of some of the other Spanish banks fall as well, partly on the expectation that they're going to have to follow suit. The Spanish banks really have been incredibly slow. I mean, you're saying there that we see Banco Popular trying to get ahead of the curve on the capital raise. And maybe that's true now. But if you look at them over the last decade, they've been very slow to face up to the issues that they've had in their loan books particularly in the real estate lending. So if you look at the overall provisions, Spanish banks since 2007 have taken loan loss provisions of about 10% of their total loan books. If you compare that to other countries, Irish banks have taken loan loss provisions of just over 18.5%. So the Spanish banks are really coming from a very far behind point here. And as the ECB is forcing them to take more and more provisions, they don't have the capital to actually do that. So they are going to have to go to the market to find it. So the Spanish banks are in a particularly bad situation. We're not really so much talking about BBVA and Santander, which are very large international banks, but you would be worried about some of the other Spanish banks. Spain isn't the only country in this situation. Italy has also been incredibly slow to face up to the rates of its bad loans. And in that context, there are fears that some of the large Italian banks will also have to raise capital as they are forced by the ECB to finally deal with this problem. 
you mentioned the ECB there. The regulator does seem to be getting more aggressive in pushing the weakest banks in the region to be more aggressive in dealing with their large portfolios of bad debts, most of which date back to before the crisis. And really, the ECB's hand is behind a lot of these moves, don't you think? Yeah, I think the ECB is certainly having a big role to play here because the ECB has been keen since the start to have a more consistent approach to how bad debts were treated across the Eurozone banks and to how the banks took provisions for the loans. Now, it is a very big shift to turn around and you also have to try to be a bit sensitive to the overall market because the last thing you want is for a large number of European banks to be simultaneously trying to raise capital from a market which isn't going to be open to that. Because from an investor perspective, it's a fairly tough call saying, give me two and a half billion to fund loss which I have already made. I mean, it is a fairly tough sell for some of these banks, particularly in places like Italy, where they have such a poor history of actually facing up to these problems. And then you look at the bank you're actually investing in. And if you're investing in one of these Southern European countries where all the focus is basically about households and also businesses having too high levels of loans as it is, the outlook in terms of actually extending new loans is, you know, obviously going to be a difficult one for them. So if you're looking at the bank and saying, okay, even if we deal with all these old problems of all these bad loans, it's very hard to see where you're going to actually find growth. Especially when the economic growth in these countries is still very low and also the cost bases of these banks have yet to be cut sufficiently. They remain very high compared to any of their international peers. Laura, thank you very much. Now we will shift over to the US where my colleague Ben McClanahan has been talking to Anat Admati, Professor of Finance at Stanford Graduate School of Business about banking regulation. This is Ben McClanahan in the FT's New York office, where I'm joined today by Anat Admati. She's been described by the New York Times as a persistent gadfly for the banking industry, regularly appearing on panels to argue that regulatory changes since the crisis have not nearly been good enough. In her 2013 book, The Banker's New Clothes, What's Wrong with Banking and What to Do About It, she argued that all this talk about stress tests and bail-inable debt and living wills and resolution mechanisms and so on is missing the point which is that banks do not have enough capital. And until they do, they will remain a menace to the system. Anat, welcome. Thank you. Let's start with that core assertion that banks need to rely a lot less on borrowed money to fund their activities. Just spell it out for us. Why are the current structures so dangerous? Well, I'm glad you explained that capital is not about some pile of cash that's sitting there, Mm -hmm. but about whether they fund their investment with borrowed money, with money for which they promised to pay back, like deposits, or with good old equity money like uh, from shareholders, just like most companies in the economy. Mm -hmm. The amount of equity funding typically on the balance sheets of banks is so minuscule, you will not find any company that's not on the verge of bankruptcy that lives like that on any regular basis. And companies with a lot more equity routinely retain their earnings to grow and invest happily, and their shareholders are happy because they make good investments on their behalf, and their creditors are being protected. It is in banking where actually distress by itself, and certainly default or failure, has particular collateral harm. Mm -hmm. And perversely, where we put a lot of safety net to protect creditors, it's there where the self-protection, just through equity funding, is so ridiculously small. Well, the banks, the obvious counter from the banks is that uh, since the crisis, they've all fattened up their equity basis. Look at JP Morgan, which always talks about its fortress balance sheet. Uh, I I looked it up just now on the Bloomberg uh, terminal. In the first quarter of 2008, shareholders' equity of $126 billion. 
first quarter of 2016, 250. So it, it's doubled. The assets have gone up a little, quite a lot, of course, to 2.4 trillion. But basically, this is a much thicker cushion of protection. Is it not enough? And if so, what is? Well, it's certainly not enough if you consider, first of all, that it's such a tiny fraction of these trillions of dollars of what's on the balance sheet, and certainly not enough when you consider the enormous off-balance sheet exposures of J.P. Morgan Chase and such banks in netted derivatives, in lots of other commitments that they made to, to, to loan commitments, and any number of other sponsorship that they have of off-balance sheet entities. So, no, it's far from enough for me. And what would be enough? Well, it's all a matter of, of accounting, and but we're not nowhere near, let's just put it that way. Okay. And you've been making this argument, as I understand it, since 2009, when you suddenly alighted on the fact that banks were running very serious risks uh, with, with the world economy. But uh, can you describe the traction you, you've made with regulators since then? Well, nobody likes to be criticized. And so they either say something in exchange or they just don't engage at all, which was sort of been the problem from the start, which is why I speak more publicly, because mm-hmm. it seems to be the only way they might listen. Now I'm told that it could have been worse. So everything about how much you accomplish, I guess, depends on what one can expect. So I was told from the start that this is a very entrenched system and it's very difficult to change it and it's a big marathon okay. and don't expect. So I don't know. I think that uh, I'm told it made some difference. It changed the conversation, but it might be, you know, I hope we don't need another crisis to really wake up to how dangerous we live. In your book, you appear to say it's, it's deliberate attempts by the banks to confuse the matter, talking about holding capital, for example, as if it's some kind of reserve. Uh, and you cited the chief executive of Wells Fargo, John Stumpf, appearing to suggest that his deposits were not some form of debt. This is now, after. This is after the book. We couldn't make this okay. up to put in the book. <laughs> but are, are these deliberate attempts to obfuscate or is, is this a genuine sort of lack of clarity? You know, I, this is outside my expertise. I'm an economist, but I did start reading psychology about how people think on what they tell themselves and things like that. So I am not sure. I've been told by people that certain things are just blind spots, that people don't understand certain things. And then there's sort of the issue of what people want to understand. And mm-hmm. this Upton Sinclair, you know, you can't teach somebody if your salary depends on not understanding. So I don't really know what goes on in people's heads. So I, I can't tell you if it's deliberate or not. It, what seems to be disturbing, let's put it this way, is that there doesn't seem to be an attempt to speak in terms that people understand. There seems okay. to be a jargon that excludes the public, and that makes it difficult for people to even understand the problems, what we're talking about. And amongst the regulators, are, are there many sympathetic characters? I, I, I think um, Stanley Fisher, uh, the vice chairman of the Fed, seems to show your concern that uh, there's not enough equity out there. But um, he, he makes the, the counter-argument that the banks are effectively constrained because if you do insist on much higher capital levels over here, then they're disadvantaged to, to a bank in France, for example, or a bank in, in Europe. I would hope that uh, the responsibility of Stan Fisher, at least while he's a regulator in the U.S., is to the U.S. citizens and not to the banks. So there is a distinction on this issue between the banks and the citizens, and I hope that the regulators are remembering that they're supposed to protect the citizens, not the banks. So any industry can succeed if you subsidize it, and if we subsidize it to be as easy on them as the other guys, then, of course, we can allow them to, uh, some industries to pollute rivers and, and, and do that, which we don't allow, even if other countries allow it. So I think that every regulator should worry about their own constituency, which is the citizens of their countries. And the success of the banks by itself is not a 
political national objective. There's also the argument that if you do make things tougher on the banks through higher capital requirements, then you push activities into the murkier shadow banking system in, in that uh, pejorative word that we all use all the time. Is that a fair concern? Well, that is one of those look over there, be worried about that kind of excuses. And it's an entirely flawed line of, of thinking because it's not usually accompanied by any specific suggestions about what to do. So either you say, okay, I have been unable to regulate before, which is exactly why we have a shadow banking system, is a testament to our failure to regulate before, which had the unintended consequences of a massive financial crisis, I want to remind. Mm -hmm. And so what now? Did we do too much since the shadow banking system was created under the previous regulations? What now? So I have a suggestion. I use the word shadow. The word shadow is very misleading here because what we're talking about is money market funds, for example, or, or asset management. Now, nobody's in the shadows. These We see them right in front of us. They're monstrous you know, institutions. Usually when somebody's you know, important in the system, we, we know who they are. And some Institutions in the so-called shadow banking system don't require a lot of regulations, and some do require better regulation, like money market funds. What I suggest, and I use the word shadow differently, I say that the biggest banks in particular, the ones we know are very dangerous because they are too big to fail, I call them shadow hedge funds because, in fact, they're not even banks. They are major conglomerates with lots and lots of other businesses, some of them not even financial, and certainly a lot of different financial businesses aside from banking per se. And if we start shining a light on the exposures of those shadow hedge funds, in, we will find the most dangerous part of the shadow banking system in entities that can only exist with the backstops of these banks, which eventually become backstops by the rest of us. So if we start there, there would at least be a constructive start to get to the shadow banking system from the most dangerous regulated entities. And that would be more, more constructive than just saying, let's worry and do nothing. What one thing would you prescribe to regulators to to really focus on? Well, what I say is they're focusing a lot on fancy securities to allow fail. I say if banks, for example, stop making payouts and just use it for other things, Mm -hmm. then, and recently, Hyun Shin and other people from BIS were just counting up how much money was paid out in payout to shareholders. That would be like, it would cost nothing. And it would just, there's only good things that can happen. And if some assets are sold, that would be good. And if the industry shrinks a little bit, that would be actually not so bad necessarily. So, A system-wide ban on dividend payments? I'd say give everybody an amount of equity that they need to raise by a certain amount. And they could retain their earnings or issue new rights offering or whatever, and they would be bolstered. And if they tell you that they want to sell a certain asset, that could be okay. So maybe this asset is not a core, core business and it's just as well to be shed off. So in other words, the, the, the restructuring can happen very naturally and they could Some of the biggest ones can break up in a natural way like conglomerates did into more manageable pieces. So there is a lot that can be focused on to kind of make the system more stable, less debt heavy, and 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 just make it viable and potentially reduce the excess capacity in this industry. So part of the reason that it might be so sick is because to survive, you need to take a lot of risk. And so maybe some institutions are just not viable and they should be wound down in good times, not in a crisis. That's it for this week. All that's left to do is to thank Ridian, Laura, Emma, Ben and Anat for their contributions and to thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon and Amy Keane. Until next week, goodbye.
Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.